Advancing Research Podcast Takeover with me, Lisa Walker, Campaigns Leader, NC UK. Our new Advancing Research campaign is all about funding and supporting quality research that will help those with neuroendocrine cancer both today and in the future. And in this podcast, we talk all things research. I'm delighted today to be joined by Professor John Ramage, a consultant physician in gastroenterology and hepatology in the Hampshire Hospitals NHS Trust and deputy lead clinician at King's Health Partners Net Centre. His research interests focus on quality of life in neuroendocrine cancer, as well as the risk factors and epidemiology of these tumours. So first of all, hello, Professor Ramage. Hello, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to talking about um, the different topics of uh, research that you're interested in and learning more about them. Um, but before we get into that, I have to start by asking you, why, why is research so important? Why is it something we should be doing? Well, the issue with these cancers is that um, when I started in this about 35 years ago, there were very large, heavy textbooks full of uh, dissertations about neuroendocrine tumours. And and reading them, uh, it became apparent that these were really mainly opinions that had been passed down from clinician to clinician over the years over what was called a very interesting cancer. But there wasn't really very much in terms of fact. And decisions um, were made on the basis of opinions and rather than fact. So what we've been doing uh, in many centres in UK and throughout the world is is trying to get some facts into what's happening with neuroendocrine tumours and treatments and management in general. So if we don't have proper research and rigorous research that's peer-reviewed, we can't really make any reasonable decisions. I'd like to think that over the last 30 years, there's been quite a lot of research and an improvement in research. And we have got some facts, uh, not enough facts, but we have got some facts that help us make decisions about patients, which we didn't have before. So clearly research is is important in helping us make decisions. That's um. That's such an interesting way you put it, because whilst, of course, I know medicine can be an art as well as a science, I, I tend to think of it also as a, a factual discipline. So it's just really interesting hearing you talk about it as, you know, it kind of started off as opinions passed down. And obviously, you know, it's great to hear about the progress that's been made and the facts that will obviously help patients with this condition. Um, so given, given what you're saying about the opinions, and so one of the challenges for us uh as a community of neuroendocrine cancer is that obviously it's one of the less common cancers. So there tends to be less awareness and perhaps less research done. Um, So in your experience, have you found the field has perhaps more opinion than fact versus some other more common cancers? Yes. (laughs) If you have a common cancer like breast cancer or lung cancer, then it's, it's easy to get thousands of patients into clinical trials and you can get answers about new drugs, new treatments fairly quickly. Um, With something like neuroendocrine cancer, you really have to have international trials. So they have to run across many countries to get enough patients to have 
a statistical meaning in the results of the trial. And so it's uh, it's equally important to have the answers in, in rare cancers, um, obviously, but it's just more difficult to do and takes more time and indeed takes more money to do the trials. No, absolutely. And it's certainly it's something we're, we're keen to work on to kind of get more funding in and be able to do more research um, and kind of support the patient community in, in being aware of some of the trials. Um, I guess taking the conversation in more of a kind of personal direction, what what first made you get interested in research and then, of course, kind of stay interested in research? What, what is it you like about the field? Well, I guess as a, as a junior doctor, which is many, many years ago, um, I obviously had um, peers and leaders um, in the field and, and a lot of them inspired me to ask questions. You know, um, again, there seemed to be opinion in textbooks, but um, we were encouraged to ask questions about are these opinions really correct? You know, does drinking milk um cure ulcers which you know is this thing that's passed down for hundreds of years um and and the evidence that that drinking milk cures ulcers is is pretty questionable really so those sort of things always came up in conversations and i guess i am i'm the sort of person that uh, often doesn't really tend to accept um the dogma and opinion that is written down from previous centuries and 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 have always been encouraged to ask questions as to you know what is really fact and and, and what's just opinion so i i guess you know a lot of um leaders in in the field have, have inspired me to go down that route over the years which is good I mean, I imagine actually curiosity must be so important. And as you say, not accepting everything you hear, because I suppose otherwise we just keep doing the same thing. It's almost that, you know, objectivity and the importance of standing back and, um, you know, wondering, is this really the best thing we could do or is there something else? I think the other thing that I should interject is that um, <clears throat> when you talk to the patients, uh, they often like to be involved in research. So if you have research trials um, or studies or anything to offer to to the patients, um, commonly they they like to be involved, they like to know what the cutting edge is and 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 most people want to be involved in the research in some way or another to to help other people. So it it, it sort of enables the 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 doctor-patient relationship in a way by by offering people trials. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think you're right, it's, it's, it's a relationship and I suppose a partnership in that research um, between the two of you. Um, so one of your interest areas is quality of life and research in that area. Um, and I suppose my first question for this is, how do you define quality of life? Because obviously that's a very subjective area and I'm sure we will have different answers to that as, as will many other people so from a research kind of perspective where it needs to be more objective how, how do you do that yeah well quality of life has been very difficult to define Aristotle was the person that that talked about it um, quite a lot of years ago even older than me <laughs> and he he came up with with um 
the term eudaimonia, which is Greek, which which means essentially well-being. Um, so over the years, people have tried to define it, and it's actually really difficult. Um, so if you go to America, um, they they feel that quality of life is about symptoms only. Um, and, and the NIH has, has sort of stated that. And if you go to Europe, most European countries feel that quality of life is about a combination of symptoms and feelings, such as anxiety. So we've um, immediately we've got difference of opinion. So I think overall, most people feel that that there should be symptoms such as pain, um, breathlessness, whatever. Um, but there also should be elements of worry, you know, worried about my disease and worried about my family, and those should should be part of it. And so what well, I spent a lot of years trying to devise questionnaires for, specifically for neuroendocrine tumors to try and narrow the questions down so that they can capture the important things. And, and it, it hasn't been that easy, to be absolutely honest, but... Um, we do have a questionnaire for neuroendocrine tumours and we do have a generic questionnaire for cancers, so we can use those. Um, and unfortunately, it does mean answering a lot of questions from the patients. And um, you end up, if you do it properly, you end up with with questionnaires quite long, like, you know, 40 or 50 questions. And then, and then uh, you have to ask yourself, well, is, is the patient actually getting fatigued by the end of the 50 questions? And are they really answering accurately? Um, I think we've got a long way to go in in assessing quality of life. I mean, at, at the moment, we we've, we've got as far as devising questionnaires that people can answer online. Um, so we're we're part of the way there, but um, there may well be better ways of measuring quality of life. You know, it could be in pictorial form, or it could be in uh, any any sort of sensory input from a patient. Um, so I've been involved really in the design of the questionnaires. I mean, the, what's probably more important really is 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 making sure that the quality of life is measured before and after a treatment. So obviously what we're trying to do is to see if a treatment makes your quality of life better or worse. So the idea is that you do a questionnaire before a treatment and then dur during a treatment and after a treatment. So uh the intervals of those and how they're captured and which questions you ask um is is complex yeah it is quite complex surprisingly complex no i i can i can see that and that's um and it's interesting hearing you talk about it because questionnaires is 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 the obvious way of i suppose measuring quality of life because it's that individual's experience but i can also appreciate some of the challenges perhaps if the questions are going to kind of 40 or 50 um, and the fatigue that that might involve. So when you're talking about, obviously, the importance of the patient is almost it's measuring the difference that a intervention or a treatment makes. Are those questionnaires typically a bit shorter and just focused on the treatment so you can kind of pull out the impact that's had? <clears throat> um, well, they're not really. Um, and it's, it's a relevant question. Um, but Traditionally, what's happened is you ask the same questionnaire, which is basically about cancer and about neuroendocrine cancer. Um, you ask that before the treatment, then during the treatment, then after the treatment, and you don't alter the questions um, because of the, the particular kind of treatment. Um, <clears throat> there are some questionnaires that are 
being developed, which are just about a treatment, for instance, immunotherapy, which has a very peculiar kind of a set of side effects. And so you can put in an immunotherapy questionnaire, uh, which is specifically about the side effects of the treatment, but then you don't necessarily get the answer to the questions about the cancer. So you have to include some about the cancer as well. Mm-hmm. So um, it is complex. I, uh, the other area that, that this is probably getting slightly technical, but but uh, there is a computer adaptive testing, otherwise known as CAT, whereby you the, the questions change depending on um, how you answer the first question. So the second set of questions changes depending. So, so if you're being asked about um, uh, the second question is going for a long, can you go for a long walk? And the first question is, can you get out of bed? Um, if you answer no to can you get out of bed, then you obviously don't ask the question, can you go for a long walk? So that's that's a very simplified version of CAT. No, but I mean, it makes sense, I suppose, also to, I suppose, shorten the questions where applicable for that patient and make it kind of make more sense when you're answering it. Um, and I totally, I having heard your answer to the question, I see you have to ask about the whole cancer. Otherwise, if you're just doing a treatment, I suppose you're leading someone down a pathway. And as you say, it becomes more about the treatment than the overall impact on your life so that that makes a lot of sense um and yeah I the more we're talking the more I can see the complexity of this because I suppose ultimately one of the goals of treatment as well as you know treating that particular part is making people feel better and that kind of feelings and well-being part that we were talking about earlier and I guess that is harder to measure if the questions are changing um throughout it and I suppose again keeping the questions always the same even if they're long is a way of bringing objectivity into an area that can be quite subjective so can I can I just mention the um we we are starting a a project um at King's um it's quite a big project and it's what it's about is trying to recruit patients to quality of life studies um, through the patient organizations. So it would be through Cancer UK. So in other words, you know, an advert would go out on the website to recruit people into these studies. And and we're looking at whether whether you get a representative sample of of, of, of patients from that and, and and what the ethical things are and, and whether you can so in other words you could just recruit a thousand patients from the website without involving their treatment centers at all. Um, and and we're just looking at that at the moment because um, it has been difficult to get patients to take part if you if, if you try and pick them up from hospital clinics. So um, that that's sort of um, a project that's going through at the moment. That's interesting. Just um, why would there be any ethical considerations if it's kind of direct to the patient rather than through a center? <clears throat> okay, um, we could get bogged down in in legal <laughs> jargon here if we're not careful. Um, but basically, if you do if you do research in the NHS, you you have to have a, a very complex ethical approval, which takes many months. If if you approach patients outside the NHS, i.e., via a website, and the the data is anonymized, um, then then it, it's probably possible to do a certain amount of research on on that data without full ethical approval, um, and that's sort of the nuts and bolts of it. Okay, no, that's interesting because I guess I was just thinking from a I guess from the patient community perspective, actually, I can imagine it'd be quite welcome 
um, to be able to enter a trial in that way if it's interesting to them, because perhaps it's easier to find out about it rather than waiting for their next appointment, whenever that is. That is just, I mean, I know there's lots of ethical considerations within research. I definitely don't know the details, but that, that was just an interesting aside, I suppose, when I heard you talk about it like that. Um, and so is, will that study be kind of all cancer patients together, quality of life, kind of not looking at specific types of cancer they have? So um, neuroendocrine cancer will certainly be one part of that. Okay, no, that, that just that sounds really interesting, and that's a, a like a good number of patients as well, obviously for um, you know outputs. In terms of, um, I suppose, some of the the future then of quality of life and what you were talking about with potentially in the future it being maybe more pictures or sensory, is that is that the aim? Is that kind of where you want to get to to almost still be able to have the quality of life? Um, answers, but in a, in a more patient-friendly way, if if that's the right way of explaining it. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> I I mean I think that would have to be tested. Uh, I mean th- this is we could end up getting into psychological jargon here, but the uh, the my worry about the quality of life research um, in in trials is is that the questionnaires tend to be enormous. And I think often the patients, as as we all do when we get questionnaires um, for various things in our lives, uh, you know, our heart sinks when we, you know, if if someone says you have to fill in a fifty-five question questionnaire, you know, immediately your heart sinks, and and you know, do I really have to do this? And you know, am I am I really going to concentrate to the end of this questionnaire? And so I can't help feeling that. Um, you know, th- there's probably a better way somewhere. Mm. I'm not quite sure what it is, but um, it, it, there's probably a better way than giving someone 55 questions to answer. No, <laughs> that that absolutely that absolutely makes sense. I, I can see that's a challenge, and it's a uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's no doubt. I'm sure there would be the the um, appetite from patients to be involved, especially in something like quality of life that <clears throat> is so important to their experience of of any disease. But I suppose also you want to do it in as easy a way as, as is possible. Um, and just just one more question about the survey. So you said you've been working, obviously, um, over your career and putting together these questionnaires. Do they, do you kind of work with patients to work out what goes on the questionnaires or, or where do you, I know you said there's obviously there's differences with kind of America and Europe in what you consider to be on it, but I suppose more personally to you and your career, how have you decided what, what gets included on that survey? Uh, it's all patient-driven. I mean that that is the a lot of the development is run by the EORTC, which is the European Organization for Research and Treatment in Cancer, and their Quality of Life Group. I mean, it, the the whole ethos of development of questionnaires is that they're patient based, so that the patients have by far the greatest uh, input into what's in the questions. So it's not it's not something that is designed by doctors or healthcare workers. Uh, and we often get questions from healthcare workers saying we don't agree with these questions. And and my answer to that is, well, you know, this is what the patients have decided are the most important questions. So you can't really challenge that as a healthcare worker. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I suppose that's a way of being patient centric, which is, I guess, yeah. you know, obviously one of the goals of all treatments across the board. So no, yeah. that make that makes sense. And so is it just purely logistically, is it one-to-one interviews with the patients or do you kind of get a group of patients together and see where there's consensus or 
just I guess some of them more nuts and bolts of <clears> how <throat> do they decide and how do you decide is it the most <clears <clears <throat> excuse me, the most <throat> common? Um well there's there's a there's there's a four-phase development um uh, plan which is online at the URTC if if anyone is interested it's not very it's not very interesting <laughs> it's a very interesting read to be absolutely honest but it, it goes through four phases and, and the initial ones tend to be one-to-one patient in, interviews uh, and there's big literature search, and then they're combined. Uh, and 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 the sort of field testing at the end of it is is usually online, where people just answer online questions. So it's it's a sort of development process. Okay, no, that that's really fascinating. And um, so one of one of my other questions for you was around um, you know other or quality of life trials you're doing at the moment. Obviously, you've just mentioned the kind of the wider cancer quality of life study with a thousand patients. Is there anything else in the pipeline or coming up that you're aware of around quality of life and neuroendocrine cancer? Well, the as I said, they've done the computer adaptive testing for the generic cancer questionnaire. I mean, in in the future, we'd like to do computer adaptive testing for the uh, for the GINET twenty one, which is 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 the main uh, neuroendocrine cancer. So. Um, that's a big project. I think the recruiting patients through the patient organisation is is a big project. Um, I, I think that the the GINET twenty one, which was developed more than ten years ago, actually needs to be redone um, as a result of new treatments and new understandings. So that's a big project. I mean, it took us about eight years to. Wow validate that questionnaire so that's a big project for someone probably a bit younger than me okay. no that's already interesting and actually that's like that's so true I suppose in order to keep quality of life relevant as new things are developed and as things change I suppose they need to be reflected in it too okay it's I mean it's a fascinating area and I think the future also sounds really exciting and actually it's wonderful that quality of life is included because um Actually, hearing you talk, it sounds like that's a newer area of what people sometimes think of as research, but arguably probably one of the most important when you're looking at the patient's experience and ensuring it's as good as it can be for them. Um, Thank you so much. That's been fascinating about quality of life. And I think we'll end that conversation here. But um, thank you very much, Professor Ramage. That was great. Thank you very much. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to Not Just Any Cancer Series wherever you listen to your podcast and please do leave a review.